Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Just a warning before you listen to this podcast, this particular episode deals with issues of sexual abuse, domestic violence, suicide and murder. If any of these issues raise problems for you, please contact Lifeline 13 11 14. Family law is complex and increasingly so perhaps as the Australian legal system plays catch up to the society it represents. My guest today is Stephen Page, an award-winning family lawyer from Brisbane. Admitted in 1987, Stephen has been an accredited family law specialist since 1996. He has presented at conferences around the world about family law. He's a fellow of both the International Academy of Family Lawyers and the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys. He holds several committee positions, including with the American Bar Association and the Queensland Law Society. Stephen is an international expert for the World Bank in its Women, Business and the Law Survey, and he lectures in law and ethics in reproductive medicine at the University of New South Wales. Stephen has written and presented about family law and surrogacy around the world, including for the International Bar Association and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Stephen has received a number of awards, including the inaugural Pride and in Law Award last year in 2020. When he left uni in the 80s, he, like other students, wondered how the law might deal with the reality of life when it really kicked off. To his amazement, in 2012, he acted in the first case in the world that was said what was to conceive a child. He never expected to be a pioneer in his field, but he was not prepared to accept the world as it was. In his spare time, Stephen chairs his daughter's daycare committee, daycare committee, I should say, and it's my special guest here today is Stephen Page, and I'm so excited to chat to you about the politics of family law. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Amber. Lovely to talk with you. Indeed. So when you grew up, did you always want to be a lawyer or did you have some other career ambitions? Did you end up where you thought you'd be? No, I didn't want to be a lawyer. Uh, I became a lawyer out of accident. Uh, Both my parents were teachers and I I figured I was particularly good on English. Uh, But I I knew that uh, after hearing many stories from each of my parents about the woes of being teachers, that I did not want to become a teacher. So that's how I became a lawyer. Excellent. So you excelled in English and were you sort of passionately in the debating club or anything like that at school, anything that would set you up for your future career? Uh, No, my sister was. My sister was. I I wasn't particularly uh, in that. It must be said I was a very shy student um, back at high school. Um, The idea of standing up in front of strangers and talking absolutely terrified me. And, of course, the irony about being a lawyer, being well, at least being an advocate, is that you get out of university and then I was in a debating society at university, I should say. But uh, Oh, there you go, the late bloomer. So it did happen. <laughs> yeah, late bloomer. And, and I got out, you know, got out the other side and into practice and suddenly I have to stand up in front of a stranger and talk and uh, namely a judge. And, of course, 
it was a case of sink or swim, and I and I was certainly wasn't going to sink if I had anything to do with it. Interestingly, obviously, family law has changed, I'm sure, over the number of years that you've practised in it. Can you think of some of the most significant legal changes that stand out in your professional experience and kind of what have they meant for families? Because at the end of the day, the law has to serve the people that it represents. Well, I'll just start with first the the obvious, that many things don't change, and that is relationships form, relationships break down, and when, when they break down, they break down in either rather calm manner or uh, full of bitterness and, and bile and anger. And when, when that happens, then, then the dynamic that I've seen for the last 30-odd years plays out. It, it is really sad that when I started um, full-time legal practice, I did two years before my admission as what was then called an article law clerk, but in 1985 I, I was confronted with the reality of domestic violence. Domestic violence is really talked about then, and as we've seen, much more commonly talked about now. But it was a year ago that a young mum and her children uh, were firebombed by the father of the child, uh, the father of the children, uh, in Camp Hill in Brisbane, and and rightly so. There is now a memorial to them, and uh, you know just this outrageous act of uh, what I call domestic terrorism. But the sad thing for me is that pretty well the same thing happened in the same suburb about 20 years ago when a father decided that he was going to kill the mother that was his ex and their children and himself and did so. And at the time, everyone said, well, we can't allow this to occur. This is an outrage. How did this happen? We must prevent this happening again. And yet 20 years later, pretty well the same kind of thing in the same suburb has happened again. Camp Hill's a decent suburb, I might add, uh, for what it's worth, but it's just by coincidence that both these murder-suicides have occurred um, a generation apart. And I think it illustrates a great problem that we have in family law, that namely that of um, domestic violence. It's really at the core of much of what the courts do. Absolutely, yeah. Look, and I think, you know, we are more aware of it and obviously it's 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 definitely not okay, but I suppose the law has a role to play, but it, it's probably part of a very complex system of other support that needs to happen to really make sure that these sorts of tragedies are, are very, very few or hopefully none, but I don't know that we'd ever get to that. Well, I think the police is certainly taking a better role. They often criticised for um, their lack of action. But I was quite surprised. I, I did a presentation a couple of years ago about domestic violence and I, I looked at the st- statistics in Queensland believing that, well, the rate of domestic violence was going up. For some reason, it seemed to be going up, even though there'd been a generation of activity to try and stop it, both in Parliament and all, all the way down. But what I actually saw, uh, to my surprise, was that these statistics were going down a bit and what was also going up uh, by contrast was the actions of prosecutions. I've been in practice so long that I remember when the domestic violence legislation came in and it came in because the criticism was made that police weren't charging people. That criticism is still made but what I saw with the statistics was that police were much more willing to charge and when they take actions to stop domestic violence, active actions to stop domestic violence, lo and behold, you see the other statistic, which is the domestic violence rate goes down. And I don't think that those two are a coincidence. I think they're actually related to each other. There was a long campaign in Queensland 
to make strangulation a separate offence. And I had taken the view, well, it doesn't need to be a separate offence. It's clearly criminal behaviour, should be prosecuted, but it wasn't being prosecuted. And the activists who were campaigning for this, they were right. Um, They were absolutely right. I, I have to say, well, on that one, I was wrong because what we've seen with strangulation in a, in a, a domestic setting, if I've got the name of the, of the offence right, is that there have been many, many, many prosecutions since the law came in about five years ago. And a sad part, I think, is when one looks at the statistics, uh, one sees that the lowest rate of those strangulation uh, prosecutions occur in Brisbane, uh, so if we talk about the size of my state, Queensland, and the sad part is that the highest rate of prosecutions is in far north Queensland, namely Gulf communities primarily, uh, Aboriginal communities. So that that is very sad because it illustrates what we know, uh, that in Aboriginal communities in particular, there are very, very high rates um, of domestic violence. And unfortunately, that dynamic hasn't gone. One thing you asked was about how things have changed. Well, some things also have not changed in that uh, there have been complaints since all in the entire time I've been in practice about delays in courts, uncertain outcomes in courts. This seems to vary with the year, but it goes along these lines that there aren't enough judges and it's not a priority for funding from Commonwealth, particularly Commonwealth resources, so that there are delays occurring there. But one change that has happened, and this really got underway, I think, in a big way during the, during the Howard government, was the focus on mediation. So, so that in cases where there's, it's suitable for mediation, so clearly not primarily cases involving domestic violence, uh, there's lots of mediation occurring through family relationship centres and other community centres, private mediators. And these days, if you have a property matter and you end up in the, in the federal circuit court or, or less commonly in the family court and you haven't reached agreement, you'll go off um, for a private mediation. The judges are very confident that private mediators have a high settlement rate and it's obviously better for parties to settle than to take the matter through to a trial, certainly in most cases. Absolutely. Changing tack a little bit, surrogacy laws are complex and have perhaps changed over time with a rise in people seeking legal advice up front before they go down that path or perhaps where there are health or fertility risks for a woman, for example, to bear a child or a same-sex couple wanting to have children with their own genetic makeup from one or more partners. In what ways have you seen that become a bigger part of your, your practice in recent times? Yeah, it's become, a, it's become a large part of my practice. And if we go back to 1988, which is when I had my first surrogacy client, a woman came into my office in suburban Brisbane and said that she'd had a child for a couple had been paid $10,000 to do so and hadn't gone through an IVF clinic because IVF had been around for a short time at that stage and wanted to know whether she'd keep both the baby and the money. And I, I told her that she could. It didn't give me any joy to tell her that, but I, I told her that she could. And part of the reason for that was that my home state criminalised all forms of surrogacy here, there, everywhere, you know, even Queensland, overseas, commercial non-commercial, so what we call altruistic, traditional, gestational, the lot. And 
what would then happen was that when, when people would come in and ask me about surrogacy, I'd say, well, you can't do it. And uh, they say, oh, well, uh, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, after about, you know, one minute consult, they got this blanket advice from me. And then, of course, the next question was, well, where can we do it? And, and, and then what I would see was uh, what we've continued to see uh, as a dynamic in the last 30-odd um, years, people changing their lives or going somewhere else if they can't do it in the first place. So about 10 years ago, following political change, that there was a great change in Australia to allow uh, surrogacy to occur in most states. So the, the, between 2008 and 2012, there was legislation in each of the states to allow altruistic surrogacy to occur. Uh, there, ha- there wasn't in the ACT. They'd had laws in place pre-2004, nor were there laws in the Northern Territory. I'm, I'm very pleased to say that I'm on the uh, surrogacy working group for the Northern Territory Government because uh, the Northern Territory is now uh, moving to, to have those laws. And those laws in general have not had discrimination towards same-sex male couples and, and, and singles. Uh, and I say that in, in general terms. Um, there have been um, some elements uh, of discrimination in, in some places, but uh, South Australia, I think, is an example of how the law has changed because it originally discriminated against singles and it also discriminated against uh, same-sex couples. All that discrimination fell by the wayside. The funny thing was that the discrimination against same-sex couples went first. Uh, the discrimination against singles went second. Which is counterintuitive, I think, how yeah. you think that might flow because, you know, it, it, society is sort of, in terms of conservatism, you know, you think of that as, as a different pathway. And I suppose is, is it generally still easier for people to have a surrogate overseas and bring that child home to Australia and be recognised? Well, I was just going to say WA still has discrimination. It, it ACT still says if you're a couple, it doesn't matter about your sexuality. You can't be a single in the ACT to do surrogacy. So they haven't updated their laws. And WA uh, still discriminates against single men and gay couples, and they've acknowledged that they shouldn't, but there's been a political impasse and hasn't been fixed. At the time of this interview, there's going to be an election in WA. Let's see what happens after the election. Interesting. Uh, and numbers, the, the, going, to, going to your question, the numbers uh, are quite clear that why people can undertake surrogacy uh, in Australia, and I, I have to disclose my husband and I have both done so. We've, we've had an altruistic journey in Queensland. So it was all done in Brisbane. We, we didn't have to go anywhere. We were very, very lucky. But for most people, that's not the journey they do. And for every baby born in Australia, there are about three born overseas via surrogacy. Right. So, so it's still not if you like, the, the, the majority happening here. And it sounds like the legal system, because it isn't, it's not nationalised, it's all state-based, it, it does make it more complicated for couples and people seeking that. Well, I think the main, I think, I think there are two reasons why um, there are more surrogacy births overseas than here. And, and they, they're both um, legal settings and these apply across, across the, the country the Northern Territory, as I said, doesn't have surrogacy laws, but it will soon fall into line with everybody else. But the, but the two two big settings are that you can't pay an egg donor, um, you can't give her a fee for being an egg donor, even though she might potentially put her life at risk uh, for donating eggs to someone else. 
and you can't pay a fee to a surrogate, even though, again, she might be putting her life at risk uh, to carry someone else's baby. And so if, if you don't have a family member or a friend, or if you're really lucky, you can't find someone on, on, on the internet, because that, that happens, and then there are laws about um, not advertised and they vary state by state, you go overseas. And, it, and to me, it, it, it is a bizarre situation that more Australian children are born via surrogacy in the United States than they are in Australia. Wow, that's interesting. Now, power. In the last last year, the the year right, 2020 year, 1919, sorry, 2019 to 2020 year, there were 275 children uh, born overseas via surrogacy. 95 of those were in the United States. The number of children born via surrogacy in Australia and New Zealand through Australia and New Zealand IVF clinics was, I think, 81. And you would knock off um, from that number, say, five, five or six or seven who are from New Zealand. So down, we're down to about 70-odd. But 95 Australian children were born by a surrogacy in, in the United States. And so the United States is the most expensive place in the world to undertake surrogacy. It's certainly much more expensive to do it there than here. But what that says to me is that it is a place where it can be done safely, where there are rules of law that are crystal clear where there is high quality IVF and there are available surrogates. Absolutely. And there isn't discrimination against same-sex couples. Which must make that path easier. You have touched on it a little in that last question, but obviously you have your own personal experience of family law with the legal recognition a couple of years ago that your daughter Elizabeth, born via surrogate mother and your husband's sperm, and in Queensland, as we've mentioned, where you're based, you were able to go in about closing a loophole prior where you could have up to four people named on her birth certificate. Tell us how prepared you were for that process. Obviously, you've got your professional hat, but this is personal for you. And really, how does that so-called piece of paper really change your view or make you feel better about being a parent? I mean, does it really change anything? And why was it so important, I guess, for you to to be part of that? Well, I I should start with saying that that I I now have three children. Oh, okay. There you go. Because I have have, have two sons, age 30 and 27, from a previous relationship. And that didn't involve surrogacy, but it did involve infertility on, on, on both their, their mother's part and my part. So that, that is a challenge to be told that you are infertile really knocks you around in the head. It, it, it is really hard, hard stuff. Um, but we were lucky. We didn't have to do IVF, but my um, sons were conceived and born. My eldest son almost died in childbirth, my second son thankfully was born very smoothly and then when it came to the birth of Elizabeth it really was a a challenging process and and why it was challenging for a start was because you have to go through an enormous amount of stuff to be done and I knew this um, from professional practice but there's nothing quite like standing at an IVF clinic and you've just done a procedure and they say oh that'll be three thousand dollars thanks and what immediately goes through your mind is, aside from an attack of the flutters, is do I have enough on my credit card 
Is there enough on the limit there to pay for it? Yeah, the cost is just, I can imagine. I mean, I've got lots of friends who've been through through IVF and sometimes they say this is our $100,000 child, for example, at the end of the day, if they've gone through that many rounds and, you know, all the procedures. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, you, you know, that that is the most expensive part of doing surrogacy in Australia, the IVF, without a doubt. And we had some financial issues at first. We got, got through those. We had medical issues with our surrogate. We had medical issues with our egg donor. And they were both family or friends to us, so, you know, known to us and close to us. That we didn't have to go through website to find someone else. And so we were, we were lucky from that um, point of view. But then our journey itself was particularly challenging. Uh, many people undertaking surrogacy have a nice smooth journey. Surrogate gets pregnant, surrogate gives birth. Woohoo, everything's great, you know, magic. Our first pregnancy was a miscarriage. That's kicking the guts. And the, and the doctor says, well, um, it's, not your, it's not your fault, the surrogate. And of course, she thought it was her fault, and that's a typical reaction of a surrogate in that circumstance. I think any woman probably having a miscarriage is that sense of self blame probably as well so it wouldn't be dissimilar well of course but it's not her it wasn't her genetics right and then the doctor says well it's the genetics and you immediately think oh crap if you know if that didn't work yes what about the next yes, one is that going to work the barrier it goes rattles around inside the brain anyway that, that we, we got on with it we thought okay we're going to focus on it so the second pregnancy was ectopic now i've advised in i think 1,600 plus surrogacy journeys, never, ever, ever had clients with ectopic pregnancy, except mine, and I uh, said to her surrogate when we learned that it was ectopic and she had her virgin surgery, I said, this was not done to hurt anybody. This whole journey was to for you to give us the gift of life. Whether the two of us have a child is really beside the point. I could not live with myself if something happened to you, something bad happened to you. Anyway, it all, all ten, turned out okay, and, and uh, then we had the third pregnancy. With the same surrogate, I'm assuming? Elizabeth, almost. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yeah, absolute trooper. Absolutely. Um, but the third pregnancy, Elizabeth almost died, and I, I don't need to bore you with the details. The good news is that she was born safely, but, you know, of my three children, my first and my third almost wow. died um, in childbirth. It just illustrates the risk. And then when we got out the other end, we had issues about who was recognised as a parent because it's a post-birth process of obtaining an order from court. We had an issue in the hospital because our surrogate was cleared to go home and our baby was not. And the hospital kicked it up through three, three sets of midwives, three midwives and three hospital executives and the hospital lawyer that told our surrogate it was advisable uh, for her not to leave the hospital because she was the only parent. We were essentially sidelined and she felt violated because she just wanted to go home to be with the daughter. And, you know, I thought at that point, surely we should have auto automatic recognition of parents at this stage so we don't have to go through the court process. Instead, we still had to go through the court process because that, that's the process that we have. And the difficulty that we had in Queensland at the time was we had conflicting court cases about who was recognised as a parent. Was it our single surrogate or was it my husband and our single surrogate or was it my husband and me or was it all three of us? I didn't know the answer to that and I did the appearance and and 
been up here for, for both of us uh, on in the court matter, and I've done many surrogacy matters, but I can tell you it was the second most nervous court appearance I've ever done after the first I ever did. So much at stake, I guess. It's so personal. Well, it was high stakes because it was our matter, but primarily it was because it was uncertain law. And that, that just says test cases are really interesting, except when they're your own. Absolutely. When they're your own, it's, you know, it's white knuckle stuff. And that's, that's where I was at. Everyone else in the matter was relaxed. You know, my husband was relaxed. Yeah. The lawyer for the surrogate was relaxed. The lawyer, the surrogate herself was relaxed. I wasn't because I was thinking, what happens if I've got this wrong? Then what? Anyway, I didn't get it wrong. I got it right. But you don't know until you get the ruling from the court. Yes, pioneering stuff. The family court merger announced earlier this year has had some mixed reactions, many of them hostile by some of your peers in the in the legal profession. Just quickly, what is the reality of this for most families that are going through the system now? I mean, what's really changed for them as a result of that merger? Well, I don't think the merger is going to make terribly much um, difference. The courts, I think, absolutely overwhelmed with the number of cases. Uh, one only has to listen to the Federal Circuit Court on any day to, to, to see that. Uh, family court judges have dealt with what they call uh, Magellan cases, those cases dealing primarily with sexual abuse, uh, allegations of sexual abuse. That's been uh, their main focus. Family court judges have been dealing with appeals. I think there's there's going to be some change. It, it's been, it was touted by the attorney that there was going to be a great saving because there's going to be triage efforts and, and much easier to transfer matters between the courts and the court rules are going to be the same. Well, it'd be good to have the court rules being much more similar to each other. Um, I don't think there's great differences uh, between them. Triage, well, that'd be a good thing to do, but most applications are filed in the Federal Circuit Court anyway. Time will tell whether there is, in fact, a, a major major difference. Interesting. So I believe that most people in their lives have a number of advisors, mentors, people that have kind of come to their life maybe for a long time or passed through for a short time. But are there one or two people that really stand out in your life as being sort of your key mentors and what have they taught you about life and success? I I think that I've I've been uh, most fortunate. I, I fell into family law, not wanted to do family law, and uh, a woman who's who died about a year or so ago, uh, Carmel Murray was my was my boss at the time. She was known as the uh, Duchess of Divorce. Oh, what a title! <laughs> she was a rough, yeah, she was a rough, chain smoking, big drinking, bold personality who swore worse than any sailor, would throw files. You know, she was very dramatic, but she absolutely loved her clients. These were real people. These weren't corporations. She just absolutely loved working for real people. And that's what impressed me, why I wanted to do family law, because I wanted to help real people, because changing people's lives is so enriching. It gives me such a sense of purpose to be able to see someone who comes out of a relationship crushed and be able to get them standing on their own two feet, believing in themselves and then changing, changing the world themselves. My clients have been my inspiration, clients who are in that situation. And I remember one client rang me years after the event and recounting the case, and I didn't think the case had gone terribly well. 
And, and she described how her previously violent sons, because they'd been instigated by a previously violent husband, had left him, gone to her, and she had remarried to a man who wasn't violent and wasn't a drunk, so that was a, a good thing. And she got a job, even though she was an Aboriginal woman and she'd only been educated to grade three. She had full-time, uh, decent employment and said to me, I owe it all to you. And I said, what did I do? You know, I was quite downcast, I think, by how her matter had gone, even though I had stood up for her at every step and there were quite a few steps in, in her case. And she said, no one believed in me. I didn't even believe in myself, but you believed in me. That's incredible. That's what made the difference. Absolutely. As we wrap up today, what would be your final hope or wish for anybody navigating the politics of family law? I hope that one day, that irrespective of our gender, that we are all given the opportunity to succeed to the heights. Yeah, that's a fantastic wish. I really appreciate your time this morning. You've been very generous in in the areas we've covered and the detail that you have given. If this podcast has raised issues for you, please remember you can contact Lifeline 13 11 14. I've connected today with Stephen Page and his details will be on our show notes. Until the next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.